Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. Anissa Ramirez is a materials scientist who calls her area of specialization the New Jersey of scientific fields. Well, I'm from New Jersey, so I can say that, but um, I, I liken material science to New Jersey because both New Jersey and material science have been overshadowed by their neighbors. And I grew up there, so for New Jersey, those neighbors are New York and Philadelphia. For material science, those neighbors are chemistry and physics. But material science, she says, tells us a lot about who we are and how we do what we do. I have to be honest, the first time I heard about material science, I wasn't even interested in it. I was like, what? That doesn't sound right. But my professor said something that completely blew me away on the first day. He said, the reason why we don't fall through the floor, the reason why my sweater is blue, and the reason why the lights work all has to do with the interaction of atoms. And if you can understand how they do that, you can get them to do new things. And when he said that, I stopped listening to him because I started looking at things in the lecture hall and I was like, he was absolutely right. You know, the pencil in my hand was able to move because carbon atoms were sliding past each other and my eyes were able to see because the glass in front of my eyes was bending light to my distant retinas. So for me, it was the perfect frame to understand how the world worked. Last week, we looked at how the materials we use to keep time ended up reshaping our lives. And now, another story from Anissa Ramirez, who's the author of the book, The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another. This one involves a model named Shirley, a flying horse, and Leland Stanford, the guy who founded Stanford University. He had a bet with his friends, and it was a very hefty bet because he's a millionaire, so a million-dollar bet with a friend is no big deal. But they were thinking, and, and by the way, he also loved horses, so he wanted to know how his horses ran. And there was a thinking that, his thinking was that at some point, the horse ran with no hoofs on the ground. And his friends were like, you're crazy, because if that happens, well, the horse will just fall to the floor. Apparently, this is what rich people argued about in the 1870s. But anyway, Leland Stanford needed a picture of a horse running to prove, he hoped, that he was right, that for a brief moment while it's running, a horse is airborne. Problem was, photography was not up to taking action photos in the 1800s. Back then, it was good for long, drawn-out portraits of people like Louisa May Alcott and Frederick Douglass, portraits in which people tend not to be grinning because the process was long and they had to stay perfectly still. So Stanford hires a photographer named Edward Mybridge who tries to get creative. And what Mybridge has to do is he has to have a series of cameras in a row, 12 cameras and then later 24 cameras, which have a string across them. And so as a horse runs across, breaks that string, the shutter goes down so that he's able to capture a slice of time. And it ends up that, yes, the horse does have all of its feet off the ground. But I'll also add, if, if you look at old paintings, you'll see that the horses look absolutely strange. And it's because most people thought that horses didn't have all the feet off the ground. They actually painted the horse the way a cat runs. And so these, if you look at it, the images look really strange. It's because people really didn't understand how horses ran. By the 1900s, Ramirez says, the technology that folks like Mybridge had used seemed old school. Action photographs were becoming increasingly possible. Cameras were more and more popular in the middle class. And photography was moving from an expert-dominated, chemical-filled experience in the darkroom to something that was more mainstream. But as those chemicals became more formulaic, they increasingly shaped what 
and who we saw. As film was manufactured and it became more standardized, it seems that the film started to be able to pick out lighter skin better than darker skin. Why was this? Well, Ramirez says, it has to do with scale, with science, and with decisions. Color photography was very, very popular, but color photography is very hard to standardize. And if you change magenta, blue, or yellow, or black a little bit, you change other components of the film. And so one of the ways to make that easier was to develop a cheat sheet, which was called a Shirley card. And a Shirley card was a woman who was of Caucasian descent, who was a brunette, had blue eyes, and there were colorful pillows behind her. Now, if you use her as the standard, anyone who doesn't have the same complexion won't come out well. So someone who's, who is of Asian descent or African-American or Latina, they're not going to come out the same because the film has been actually optimized for the image of the Shirley card. So when you talk about the Shirley card, this was like a piece of paper that physically got sent out to different like photographer studios or whatever, and people would uh, try to match their red to the red on the card. And That's right. Right? Okay. And they're blue it, so that everything was lined up. It was a standard because if someone took a picture, they wanted to make sure that it looked the same on a billboard or a cereal box. So these I standards see. were everywhere. Just like if you go to the doctor and you see an eye chart, you would see one of these charts uh, in a studio. Okay. So then so then you talk about these couple of employees of the Polaroid Corporation um, who realized um, that... Uh, Polaroid actually built in this extra button, I think, right, to their cameras to allow darker skin to be photographed better. Um, Talk a little bit about why they did that. Well, in the back of the Polaroid camera was a boost button. And what it did is it made the flash about 42 percent brighter. And it was designed for people of color uh, because darker skin absorbs more light. And so when they took the picture without the boost button, that person would be very, very dark. You would see just maybe their eyes or their teeth or anything that was bright. But the rest of their features would not come out. And so this boost button was employed to make sure that you can see all of their features. And in The Alchemy of Us, I talk about how Polaroid was actually linked to South Africa. It ends up that in South Africa, cameras were needed in order to create passbooks for black South Africans. And when uh, the standard camera was used, uh, the images didn't come out very well because, again, you didn't see the their likeness of the person of color. So the boost button was applied so that you could see all of their features. And then how did it come to light that, you know, that, I mean, the, the Polaroid Corporation was not really advertising that they were doing this, not in America no. anyway. No, 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 not at all. I mean, Polaroid was like Apple of the day. It was like the most loved company and, and everybody wanted that product of instant cameras. But uh, it ends up that This 20-something-year-old chemist was going to lunch with her friend in the art department, and she saw a bulletin board that had a uh, picture of an ID card, and it said Republic of South Africa on it. And so those two look at each other, and they're like, what's Polaroid got to do with South Africa? Because this is 1970. And these these people at lunch are both employees of Polaroid, They're both employees of, of Polaroid, and South Africa in 1970 had an apartheid system, and citizens knew that Things were bad over there. And also they Mm -hmm. knew not to really operate with South Africa. So what is it that this most loved company, what are they doing with South Africa? Well, what these two employees, Caroline Hunter and Ken Williams, found is that every black South African, all 15 million of them, had to carry with them a passbook. A passbook was a 20-page document which told officials where this person can go, where they could not go. It was a way to 
control and monitor their whereabouts. At the heart of the passbook was a picture made by, by Polaroid. So this was a way to document and control the whereabouts of people. And because Polaroid had made this fantastic technology of, uh, of generating images very rapidly, this was a, a fast way to capture the image of 15 million people. Uh, these cameras were portable. It didn't require a dark room. So this was buttressing this apartheid system. But Polaroid was really doing this, it sounds like, quietly and did not want it covered much in the U.S. In the U.S., it was not known, but in South Africa, it was known. And Polaroid didn't have a company there, but they had a distributor. So that's how it wasn't completely clear um, that they were linked to South Africa. But this is what Caroline and Ken found out. And, uh, and, and Polaroid had a presence in South Africa since 1930. It's just that they always used distributors to, to sell their products. So Caroline and Ken, they're going to lunch. They, they kind of get a, the first inklings of what's going on here. And what did they do? What ended up happening as they kind of themselves were uncovering uh, the story? Well, this is uh, 1970. There was a lot of uh, upheaval at the time, and people are feeling very connected to how their work is being used in companies. You know, the labor movement is kind of is, is healthy at that time. And so Ken goes and talks to management and says, look, it doesn't seem right that what I'm working on is actually buttressing this oppressive regime. And management says, oh, we don't have any cameras there. And if we do, it's it's a small number. But Caroline and Ken knew that you didn't need a lot of cameras in order to do what they were doing, which is to capture the likeness of black South Africans. So, and they weren't really satisfied with that answer. So what they did uh, before the age of the internet is they protested and first they generated flyers and they posted them on bulletin boards and bathrooms to let people know. And then they had rallies uh, to tell people about what was going on and student groups got involved and soon this became a snowball effect. It took about seven years, but eventually Polaroid withdrew from South Africa. Um, both of those employees, Caroline and Ken, were fired, uh, ultimately. Right. What, hap what happened to them? Uh, well, um, they got jobs. I mean, they were kind of blackballed. Polaroid was like the biggest uh, employer of in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So it was mm. hard for them to find another job in Cambridge. Ken found a job at the library. He was in the AV department. Caroline didn't work as a chemist. She was an administrator uh, in the public schools in Boston. Uh, Caroline is still alive. Uh, I've spoken to her a number of times. Hmm. So when you think about... Um the materials that help shape photography and then how those materials boomerang back and like shaped us. How do you think about this? And there's like so many, we started with Leland Stanford. I mean, there's like so many, you know, pieces of this and twists and turns. <laughs> well, in The Alchemy of Us, the, the chapter is called Capture, uh, chapter four. And it seems fairly innocent where first we're just looking at the picture of a horse. That seems very nice. And then we learn a little bit about uh, a reverend, Reverend Hannibal Goodwin, who actually made color film before George Eastman. And they're in a huge patent battle, so things get a little difficult. And then we see that the film itself has a built-in bias, and then how this film is also used as a tool. So it is like black and white film itself, where it starts off one way, and then it, it ends up being another way. So I kind of use the way that I modeled the chapter is a metaphor for film as well, that, you know, there are two sides of this. There's a dark side and there's a not so dark side. Hmm. Uh, so that's that's how I kind of see how photography can be viewed. 
Uh, where does the science stand now? I mean, I think you write about like, you know, even I don't know if this is still true now, but like interracial couples, if they're at an event together, they can have problems with this kind of light, dark balance in photographs because, you know, one person may get totally washed out. But if you adjust things the other way, then other people's features can't be seen. And I, I just give me a sense of where the science stands in terms of the materials now that are used for, for photography. Well, the science... The algorithms are the are different than the science, I think. The pixels that pick up the images, they're able to do things. It's the algorithms and, and how they uh, manage the image that's still problematic. Okay. So it's still difficult for people of different races to get a great image together. Uh, I have an old friend, and we've been taking pictures. I'm African-American. She's not African-American. And we've known each other for decades. And we're still trying to get a very good image of ourselves <laughs> together. Okay. So I'm, I, for personal reasons, I'm looking forward to people uh, fixing this problem. But there's still a bias. It's not in the tech. It's in the software. Anissa Ramirez is a scientist. She's the author of The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another. Anissa, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. more about how standardization changed photography that's at our website, innovationhub.org. Plus, if you want to hear another material science story from Anissa Ramirez, check out our podcast on Apple Podcasts. The episode is called A Watch Named Arnold. The story is about a woman who sold time. She would wake up early in her home in Maidenhead, which is about 30 miles outside of London, take the train to London, and then take the trolley over to Greenwich, and then walk up a very, very steep hill to the Royal Observatory. That's where GMT, Greenwich Mean Time, was. A big thanks this week to the people who helped put together the show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Solinger, and associate producer Sarah Leeson. We also had production help from Hannah Kiros. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. <laughs>